0: We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can call now and leave a message. They will get back to you at 905-529-7165. That's 905 529 7165. And don't forget to check out their website, AndyandDon.com. That's Andy and Don, all one word. You can ask a question there via the listener inquiry button. You can also check out old shows there as well at AndyandDon.com. Good morning, gentlemen. Good to see Good you all. Good morning, morning. Scott. You yeah. survived uh, tax season and all that stuff so far? Why? Yeah. Absolutely. I'm happy to report mine are finally done.
1: Wow, nice. <laughs> Didn't make
0: the deadline, but, yep, uh, but you had a refund coming. Pretty, yes, I did. Yes. So. Yeah, and I don't <laughs> want to argue with the two of you. How big that should be. You should get a real financial planner. <laughs>
2: <laughs> All righty, hey, way to start the gloves off first thing on a Saturday yeah, morning. Yeah, they're feisty
0: this morning. All right, uh, tax is a centurion. Tax is older than we are. Well, unbelievable! It has its birthday is officially yeah
1: September twentieth, nineteen seventeen. Really? So this year it's hundredth birthday of our current income tax system. And it was supposed to be temporary, wasn't it? Well, yeah. It's actually quite <laughs> interesting. Uh, I wonder was, if that's was, still uh, the case. Uh, yeah, no kidding. Um, you know, you look at, say, a Ferrari, and if I finally tuned Ferrari, 0 to 60, it can go in two and a half seconds.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, they got those electric cars now. They're pretty quick. Yeah. Okay, they don't quite do a Ferrari. The Versa, a little slower. It's actually the slowest at 0 to 60 at 10.3 seconds. Wow. So if you ever want to get your you can run faster than that. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you want to get your kids or teenage kid a car, a Versa is probably a good That's one a to a safe get. one. yeah. But our tax rates have gone from zero to 50 in 100 years. Hmm. In fact, as of uh, about a year ago, our tax rate in Ontario, our highest tax rate is 53.5%. Hmm. And uh, yes, you're absolutely right, Scott. It was a temporary... Tax, it, it, came, it, was, it was actually called an Income War Tax Act.
0: Yeah, for the war. Uh,
1: yeah. It was expected to raise about $15 million a year um, until the end of the war. And then it was supposed to be reevaluated at the end of the war and then probably going to be repealed.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I guess they liked the money. Yeah. Okay. And uh, it was actually interesting how they did it back then. It was uh, basically if you made over $2,000 of income for an unmarried man or a widower without children. In both cases, it was male, okay? Mm-hmm. You paid 4% tax on anything over $2,000. Well, that sounds all right. Yeah, it wasn't too bad. It actually did get up. There was another tax bracket, and I'll get to that. But that's where it started. That was the first tax bracket.
0: It's another tax bracket if you have animals. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> well, there's probably, there are a lot of farmers back there, yeah. so I wouldn't be surprised. If you were a woman or a married man with children, you had to pay, you got an exemption of the first $3,000. Hmm. And then you paid 4% tax, okay? So this, uh, so in an example, back in 1917, if you made $4,000, that would be the equivalent of $65,500 today. Really? Okay, so take a look, you know, you're thinking about there, I made 65, five. Pretty, that would actually be considered according to our tax rules right now, middle class, mm-hmm. okay? But basically, the higher middle class up till that point was zero tax. Right. Okay, uh, for at the least the, the first $3,000 for most people. So at $4,000, um, you would end up paying $80 in income tax on that $4,000, hmm. which works out to $1,311 for a single male, or in today's dollars, $655 for everybody else.
0: Hmm.
1: Now I don't know about you, but if I had the choice of paying thirteen hundred dollars for making sixty-five thousand, or probably in the neighborhood about fifteen thousand dollars now, it's uh, the tax has gone about ten times that mm-hmm. um, for the current tax rates um, for that same person earning um, sixty-five thousand dollars now. So I'm just talking about in so, but in nineteen seventeen dollars, it's again it's it's four thousand dollars is equivalent to about sixty-five thousand. Now the highest marginal tax bracket. So if you're super wealthy back in 1917, you paid 25% tax. Hmm. And that was for incomes over $100,000. Now, what was $100,000 now? This is actually the impact of inflation is incredible yeah. here. Well, 100,000 then is equivalent to $1.6 million now. Yeah. So the highest tax bracket wouldn't kick in until you made a, a 1.6 million. I like that. Yeah, Yeah, and that was only 25%. Yeah. Now the highest tax bracket, according to our government, they consider rich starts at two hundred twenty thousand, mm-hmm. and that's at fifty three and a half percent. So not only have they lowered the tax brackets, um, lowered the, the, the echelon from about a million six in today's dollars to two twenty. In fact, you could pretty much just throw away the two twenty; um, they wouldn't even notice it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, so right now, and th- this is why tax planning. Is so important right now because uh, the average individual, we're, we're we're actually getting to the point we're numb about tax. Yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> don't even notice. Yeah, you know, you, oh well, you got to pay it. You got to pay it. Yeah. And and there is this you know blasé attitude about it. And, and sure, it's keeping the accountants in business. Yeah, and it's keeping the uh, the software. And I'm sure, perhaps you used uh, income tax software for yours or did you use an account? No, I used a man. <laughs> Perfect. I,
0: I hired someone to do that.
1: And you know what? Um, for the learning curve, for whatever, it's not that expensive anyway, really. Yeah. So, but you think about it, it's gone down. It's The highest bracket is about 15% of where it was.
0: Yeah.
1: Okay, so 1.6 million down to 220. And again, the highest bracket is 53% versus 25%. Mm-hmm. You know how much more money would go in the economy if we had that kind of money that in, in our pockets. But we
0: may still have uh, infrastructure from 1917.
1: <laughs> it's actually still built and probably well lasted, Yeah, yeah it lasted a lot longer. There, there,
0: there's pieces of the uh, Gardner Expressway that are about that old, aren't there? <laughs> yeah, they
1: finally are, are falling down apparently. But And interesting enough, the tax return was only 23 lines long. Done. Mm, yeah. So you didn't need to have an accountant. You didn't need tax software. 23 lines. Yeah. You know, they, they probably teach you in grade three how to do a tax return. <laughs> so... The complexity now, as you know, is is un- incredible. The Income Tax Act, mm-hmm. uh, back in university, I'm going back 31 years ago, it's it's not gotten any smaller. It was a course and it was, oh, a good two and a half inches thick yeah. and very thin paper. yeah. In fact, they got law courses just as part of the law degree and, and it's trying to pass it by understanding the Tax Act because yeah. Yeah. it's written in such legalese, the average Joe can't understand it anyway. Yeah. And that's what we've gone to in a hundred years tons more complexity and way way more tax rather than a temporary war tax yeah now the Fraser Institute, which is but not partisan at all, they're just simply saying, okay, what would be the best thing for for the country in terms of helping the economy
0: and although, although they do have a tendency to lean right
1: Well, probably yeah, yeah you're, you're absolutely correct yeah. and that's probably why they have this me uh, being
0: Mr. Neutral <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> um, reduce the rates. Yeah. And reducing the tax rate will foster growth. Mm -hmm. Okay. And it actually has been proven that if you drop the tax rates by 1%, the GDP immediately jumps up by 1.4%. In fact, after three quarters of a year, it jumps up by 1.8%. So decreasing rates does, is a stimulus to the economy. Yeah. As opposed to the other. And I know they're they're talking, you know, we're seeing our, our, our current government saying we're gonna spend a lot of money in infrastructure and that was a great thing when he came out and said, so mm-hmm. Okay, that helps the economy, but then we're gonna tax people more at yeah. the higher end, anybody yeah. over basically seventy five thousand a year.
0: Mm-hmm. Well
1: that's our that's a, a negative to the economy. Yeah. And it's also a lot harder to get the projects off the ground for infrastructure than simply lowering the tax rate. Mm-hmm. And it's been an ongoing that's always been a lever for economic growth is lowering tax rates. Yeah. So the other is simplify, simply uh, just getting the tax returns easier, um, decreasing a lot of um, credits and things, just making it very simple. And by doing that, the average Joe can understand, and it will help out in, in general. So what they're they're suggesting in tax reform would be to improve to uh, improve incentive for. Making people work mm-hmm. okay when you're getting taxed at 53.5 percent for anything over 220, yeah, that means any dollar made after that, you're paying you're they're making more than you are, mm-hmm. so it's really a disincentive, yeah, it also leads to brain drain, as mm-hmm. we've seen people go to the states. Um, there should be incentives to save now. I would argue that we do have pretty good incentives to save, mm-hmm. um, things such as the RSPs, um, you know, having a, a pure tax deduction for retirement, um, TFSAs are another great incentive to save, mm-hmm. um. But invest, there should be something to help foster entrepreneurship. So if you're going to start your own business, maybe there's a lower tax rate for business owners for the first couple of years or something like that. I, and I'm, not, I'm just blue-skying it here, but we're looking right now, and, and I'm going to discuss millennials uh, a little later. Very little, of, very few millennials are getting into being self-employed, yeah, and uh, perhaps uh, some type of uh, tax well, incentive. Well, the
0: odd thing with millennials is they're all interested in government jobs now because that's where the pension was. Mm. When we were growing up, nobody was interested in government jobs because you could make more money in the private sector. Yes, uh, and now it's you know we've sort of bred a generation of government employees. It seems.
2: I, I think that just speaks to that the pattern of forced savings. You know, you're you're simply being given no choice in terms of putting money away for your future. Mm. And I think that's an area where millennials often struggle is the commitment to regular savings. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And it is hard to get regular savings when they're also the highest unemployed right now. So right now, the tax brackets are the highest in 20 years, period. We weren't even competitive internationally before these increases. And we are actually hurting the highly skilled, the educated and the business owners right now. Mm-hmm. And so I know it's a very socialistic system that we have right now, but it is the tax rates as it stands now is, is hurting those areas. So one of the things when Trump got elected was to lower income tax. And mm-hmm. we all wondered when Trump got elected, why did the stock market go up?
0: Yeah.
1: Well, there's a whole lot of rhetoric. We didn't understand what the heck he was talking about and uh, building walls and, and certainly a lot of his campaign things and tweets, people discount mm-hmm. but at the end of the day one of the things was lower income tax yeah. and by lowering taxes it helps the system
0: so from a Well how scared is Ontario now worried that companies are going to bolt across the border because mm-hmm. they're getting better breaks down there and and we've had manufacturing associations on on the show that have said that, uh, you know, they, businesses, Canadian businesses want to expand, but rather than expanding here, they're going south of the border because yeah. of tax
2: breaks. Yeah. I mean, the experiment is going to be, how much money do you give back to the wealthy? Yeah. And uh, and that's going to, it's interesting, Warren Buffett was on, uh, they have their annual shareholders meeting and they were, he was on TV this week saying that the change in the healthcare by, by getting right. rid of Obamacare, basically gave him an extra $650,000 this year that he would have paid last year under Obamacare as additional tax on the wealthy. Wow. So he's wow. he would rather not get the 650,000 that was his position. He said I don't need it. Yeah. But uh, it's got to come from somewhere. Mm-hmm. So you've just given all the wealthy people a huge increase. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: So At the end of the day, we have to be very diligent. And I know Andy and I, we talk about this all the time, in trying to save people as much tax, not only on the way in, but also when you're trying to get an income at retirement. Mm -hmm. What's the most tax-effective way to get your income at retirement? And also estate planning, making sure 53.5%. Because as of now, instead, what's happening is our, our government, unfortunately, they increased the budget, half a billion dollars to beef up the tax and audit system because we're actually we're getting tax more simply to pay for the auditors right now. Mm. <laughs> so if we can come up with a good plan, then uh, we can only do what we can with the rules. But part of, a big part of what Andy and I do is, is our tax planning.
0: We are planning your financial future. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services Inc. 905-529-7165. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services Inc. Call now 905-529-7165. Leave a message, they will get back to you. And don't forget the website andyanddon.com, all one word, andyanddon.com. And of course, you can listen to old shows there and ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Talking about building your portfolio. this Yeah,
2: second. and investment risk. And and mm-hmm. whenever we meet with somebody for the first time or as a ongoing uh, client uh, assessment, mm-hmm. one of the fun parts that I love is doing what we call our IPQ, which stands for Investment Profile Questionnaire. Mm-hmm. And the best part, it, I always call it the newlywed game yeah. because <laughs> what I like to do is I give each each of the uh, husband and wife a couple, uh, a a test and the purpose of the test is to identify what is their risk profile. But I always, I tell them, listen, it's like the newlywed game. You can't look at each other's answers because I want to compare afterwards and see where do you fall in on the scale from conservative all the way up to aggressive Mm -hmm. and so after they complete the the test and it takes probably about, I don't know, Don, but maybe 10. Yeah. 10 minutes, 10, 15 minutes to go through it, depending on questions or some other insight they might want. Or arguments. arguments, <laughs> yeah. And sometimes clarification. Just. <laughs> what did you put for number eight? Clarification, <laughs> that's
0: what it is. <laughs> and uh,
2: so, and then at the end I asked them to guess, well, on a scale of one to five with one being conservative and five being aggressive, where do you think your test results are going to show? And so we kind of, then we compare notes to see actually where do they end up? And it's funny how a lot of times people really have some pretty good insights in terms of where they are. And what their risk profile is, uh, and they usually have pretty good insight in terms of what their partner's risk pro- profile would be. Oh, you know, he's more risky, or she's more risky, or I'm mm-hmm. less risky, whatever it is. And but it, what's fascinating about that process is it's it's almost like when you go to the doctor and uh, for an annual checkup, and you have to sort of run some baseline tests to see where are you at physically. And might be, you know, what's your blood pressure? Let's do some blood tests to make sure you're not low on any vitamins. Let's, uh, you know, so we do all, the, the doctor will always do sort of some mm-hmm. annual regular checkups. And this is kind of one of those things where we're trying to assess or understand on a regular basis, where is your risk tolerance? Now, the one thing to be cautious of in the process is that we tend to be victims of the environment that we're in. So let's say you had just lost your job and we're in the middle of a recession and stocks are down right now and your portfolio has dropped by 10% and I say, hey, I've got a profile questionnaire about your risk tolerance today. Mm, yes. Can you answer these 13 questions for me? And so, uh, you know, so we're, we're at least cognizant, we have, we know, we can watch and be very careful in terms of assessing that because somebody might have said they were maybe a, a number four, moderate aggressive and then suddenly in that type of situation right. they're now a number two, they've gone conservative because yeah. they're very their uncertainty level and their comfort level has changed completely
1: yeah one, one thing i would liken that too is currently we, we seem to get a lot of questions about real estate mm-hmm. i says we really should probably get into the real estate because it's going up mm-hmm. and i always question this is well it's gone up okay <laughs> 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 and there's no, no there's no dotted lines that say it's going to continue to go up yeah. and uh, it's funny because if you go back 10 years ago that we never had that when the market was not going up yeah. and before it went up hmm. um, but and again i find that's very much like andy's saying when things are kind of in a doldrum people are more conservative and then all of a sudden everybody's wanting to be more aggressive and i always think well when it's up it's actually more risky yeah to yeah. buy yeah and so you do see a, and that's why it's actually probably good to get an assessment <clears throat> and that's why we have these conver- conversations uh, with clients is clarification is Okay, what, is, what would it be if the market was down right now? Would you mm-hmm. be feeling the same way? Because yeah. questions only do so much. Yeah. And it is a great, like I said, it's, yeah. uh, it's a
2: bit of a Newlywood game. <laughs> so we break down the test into into two parts. There was one which is the factual part, mm-hmm. and then there's one that is the the section that is the feelings part. And the factual part we're really just trying to identify what is the purpose of this money. You know that you've accumulated or you're going to accumulate. Is it for retirement? Is it for education? For example, uh, that's number one. Number two is. Um, when do you want the money? Like, when do you want to start taking money out of this investment portfolio? Is it going to be in the next couple of years or is this for retirement and it's going to be, you know, 10 years down the road or 15 years down the road. And then once you start taking money out, how long is that going to carry on? Is it, well, we need it all as a lump sum, you know, maybe we're buying a car yeah. or no, I want to tell, you know, I'm going to retire and I want you to send me a check every month for as long as I live. So mm-hmm. maybe another 30 years, right? So those are the sort of the factual parts of it. And that helps us in many ways. And then we get into the feelings part of it. And what we're trying to do in the feelings part is gauge or understand a consistency in your answers. And because sometimes people might be answering, oh, I want to feel, you know, I don't want to be too conservative, or I think I should be more aggressive. And I think one of the greatest dangers in answering questions is pushing yourself into a perhaps a higher risk level by answering questions thinking, oh, I don't want to be a wimp, or I I should be, I should be answering them instead of going with your gut. And there's nothing that that's going to be more stressful for yourself than if you are convincing yourself to go into a higher risk portfolio or investment mix. And then to find during a period of volatility, when everything goes down, you're doing nothing but stressing over the whole process. Mm -hmm. So the first caveat is I answer from your gut, uh, don't try and guess or think you should be in a certain category depending on, you know, where we are in the economic cycle or anything mm-hmm. like that. And because the, the greatest test to an investment portfolio is your reaction over time and your emotions over time. And even if somebody has a long-term time horizon, so let's say for example, you know, you're thinking about a, a pile, you're accumulating money for your retirement it's 15 years out or 20 years out and you're you're visualizing that you want to be more aggressive with that money, even after 10 years, and you can see that you've made money and that the, the decision to be more aggressive has worked out for you. Suddenly when the markets go south and turn downwards significantly, you're still going to feel bad. Mm-hmm. Even though you'd made the right yeah. decision yeah. 10 years previously, yeah. you're still not going to feel good about it when it goes down in value. But but being aware of that, and that's part of the feelings questions, is to just remind people, as Don said, you know, real estate, it's not a dotted line. It doesn't keep going in one direction all the time, and nor do stocks and nor do investments. So we always want to remind people be prepared for the downturn, be, be prepared for how you're going to react to that, uh, and, you know, what's our reaction going to be during a period of, of a downturn as well.
1: And, and, and it's very unpredictable. And this is why we have to bring this up, because we've, as Andy and I have been in this uh, field for 31 years each now, and it's, we've seen a few downturns. You know, There's the 87 stock market crash. That was new to me, I just started in 85. There's the 92 recession, the Y2K. Then we had, um, of course, the latest one was the mm-hmm. 08-09 financial crisis. And mm-hmm. people that took this test said, I can handle this much risk. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, we have been trained as humans really wired not to make money yeah because we do flee there our instant gut is to be more conservative when the market's down mm-hmm. and it, and it's interesting it's the only thing that does the only kind of uh if you will uh something you would purchase if it went down you'd be buying it yeah but when it comes to stocks going down so oh my life savings going down and you start to extrapolate yeah. you extrapolate when it's doing really well i gotta get, get on that one look at the gold stocks they're going up like crazy i gotta buy gold now all oh, those tech stocks look at it. and you start extrapolating those but we also extrapolate on the downside and you say wow is it ever awful we got to get into something safer you know this is too much risk for me and yet that's a buying opportunity hmm. and if gas prices were down 25 percent There'd be a lineup right from here to Dundurn Street, mm-hmm. you know, to get that mm-hmm. gas. Yeah. But in our case, it's like, "Hello, anybody home?" Like, yeah, you know. Yeah. So yeah. it is a purely. It's very much emotional. We understand it's emotional, but that's why we have to go through this. This call it a test, if you will.
2: Yeah, and you know that reminds, perfect example again is in is in the nineties. When the stock market was doing very well, it was growing on a regular basis, and uh, people, people's willingness to take on risk right. grew and grew and grew as mm-hmm. they saw year after year after year people were making a lot of money, and so finally, as you as you sort of switch your tactic from being say conservative to more aggressive, you typically when does it happen? That's it happens it at the sell, time yeah. when it's going to do the opposite, right? Yeah. And uh, and it's hard to st- I mean I have clients. Who who would call themselves conservative and their rate of return over since, since the crash of 2008, the the big, the great recession, their return has been somewhere in the three to 4% range. Meanwhile, their neighbor who took a more aggressive approach has been somewhere around eight or 9%. So I'm not sure what what happens in our psyche is. How long do we go along hearing about someone else making eight percent, and we're only making three and a half percent, where we think, we figure, "Oh, wait a minute! I want to get a slice of that pie too." How do I how do I get the eight percent rate of return? But if you stick to your guns and that's part of our, our mission is to say, you know, you're fine at three and a half percent. You don't need to make more because how are you going to feel when it drops? Will you be able to sleep at night? Right now you can, but that you won't. And, and that's the challenge is to help, help people stay the course.
1: Now, Andy, would you say that you've lost clients when they haven't made enough money because they're seeing things such as, you know, the tech sector doing really well? And say, why aren't I in the tech? Look at it, it's doing fifty percent last year.
2: Well, you know what? Those aggressive clients can get can really get onto the bandwagon, mm-hmm. right? And and then they're they, we're trying to talk them off the mm-hmm. off the sh- off the the cliff, a right? ledge, yeah. off the ledge, yeah. because it, it's it's probably going to be bad timing or a wrong mistake and it doesn't fit their profile.
0: Well, you Mm -hmm. talked about the housing market a little earlier on and, and now people are talking about getting into real estate and what have you. And there are pockets where it's valuable, such as Hamilton where the price has been deflated for such a long period of time. But if you're investing in places where it's going through the roof, you gotta wonder how much return there's gonna be at this stage of the game, especially when governments are putting, are, are, are warning about mm-hmm. a bubble and warning that they've gotta do, uh, put restrictions on certain things just to cool it off. Okay. I mean, if they're working on actively cooling it off sooner or later. It's gotta
1: finally, yeah. enough water thrown out of fire, exactly. it's gotta, gotta yeah, turn yeah. the fire off, right? <laughs> and, it's, and it's true, real estate wasn't supposed to go up by 33% in a yeah. year. Now, had it done nothing for the previous 10 years, oh yeah, okay, I agree with that. Yeah. But real estate has averaged inflation rates, yeah. just above inflation. So even if it did 1% above inflation, you'd be doing well. Um, and you look at our area, and it's just been crazy. Mm-hmm. And Hamilton had a little catching up to do absolutely right, Scott, but you're, and, and kind of the follow-through of Toronto. Mm-hmm. It's, it's far-reaching as hitting the Hamilton areas yeah. too. But it does remind me of the late 80s, where Hamilton prices we're almost caught up to Burlington prices mm-hmm. and we're, fi- we're getting to that point again. Yeah, yep, and, yep. If, and if history has any kind of, kind of uh, projection of the same type of thing, then uh, possibly we might be in for either hopefully a soft landing where yeah. it doesn't go up anymore yeah. for a while, but I, I hate to say it, but a bubble, when it bursts, it usually does go down for a few years. Hoping right. for the
2: flat line. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Flat line's good. Just staying the same. <laughs> flat yeah. line's yeah. yeah. good. Uh, so in in terms of helping people understand what their risk profile is, this questionnaire process is, is fantastic for us. And it lets us keep measuring that in the process as we go forward as well. So now we've understood or we've got a handle on what your profile is and our, maybe you're conservative, maybe you're aggressive or somewhere in the middle. And... So our mission now is to build or construct a portfolio that matches that type of risk profile for you. Mm-hmm. And so, at the at the sort of short end of things, when you think about, I need money. I, I've saved some money, but I'm going to need it in the next two or three years. I'm going to be buying a car. I'm going to be putting a down payment on a house. I'm going to be using it as a lump sum. Then. Right out of the gate, we're going to be looking at something that's extremely conservative, probably purely just a money market fund or a cashable GIC with Mm -hmm. virtually no risk to it at all. That would be the idea, no risk at all. And, but we use a a process, we call it our symphony portfolio construction and the process of symphony. If you think about a symphony is all the pieces Mm -hmm. of an orchestra coming together to create this perfect sound. Mm -hmm. And the idea of symphony is we look back over the last 50, 60, 70, 80 years to understand the patterns that have existed between different types of investments yeah. so that we can combine those investments in a symphony together that suits your type of risk. And so when we're looking at symphony process, what we've done is we've taken all of that data and we provide they provide it to us in the form of something they call the big picture. Mm-hmm. And I'm showing it to Scott, but it's, it looks... Very, very complex, but it's a chart that shows the history of investment, uh, investments, different types of investments, all the way back since 1934. So, we're looking at an 82 year history. And what we've learned from that is patterns. And the patterns about volatility when we talk about risk, we always talk about volatility how much can your portfolio fluctuate in any given year, or any given month, or any given cycle? And so, I just took a look at these this data and I wanted to sort of spell out what does a conservative portfolio look like and what has it done historically and what can we learn from that? What does a moderate portfolio look like and what does an aggressive portfolio look like? So, starting with the conservative portfolio, when we backtest that, a conservative portfolio is going to be in the neighborhood of 70% of the money is in what we call fixed income, which is bonds or the likes of mortgages, real estate, and that, that category. And 30% is going to be in stocks. And that 30% would be broken down to international, 6% U.S., and 14% Canadian equity. So a 70-30 split. Well, over the last 25 years, that portfolio has averaged 7.6% per year. And the one year kind of lowest in terms of rebalancing that portfolio is about 1.8%. And the highest, about 7.3%, would be the average uh, or what we call a standard deviation. Mm -hmm. And standard deviation is a tool that we use to understand how volatile something is. So a conservative portfolio has a standard deviation of seven. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that you add that figure, that seven, to your average return and you subtract it from your average return to understand how much volatility your portfolio would have. And that would be on a yearly basis? On right? a yearly basis, right? So if I look at, um, and two standard deviations cover 99% of, a, of your, your, your investment right. life or time span. So in a conservative portfolio, the range of returns then would end up as minus seven. So worst case scenario, over a 25-year period, you could have minus seven. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you could be as high as plus 22 and that can happen in a, in, a, in a one year time period. You could still fluctuate that much, and and that's to get seven point six percent rate of return over a twenty five year. We period. are planning your financial um, future. I'm Scott modern, Thompson, Andy Lister, and Don Fox, Fox are here. Don
0: Don. Investors Group. We are planning your financial future. Check out the website from Investors Group financial services and week. leave a Coming right back. They will return your call at nine zero five. Five two nine seventy one sixty five. 7165 That's 905 7165 We're building a portfolio.
2: Yeah. So I was talking about uh, our understanding a client's risk and then trying to construct a perfect portfolio for mm-hmm. them depending on where their profile falls. So a conservative portfolio we talked about being 70% bonds, 30% stocks. The rate of return over the last 25 years for that has been about 7.6%. Last year, Pardon me. Last year, that portfolio did 1.8 percent, and then standard deviation is the measure of how much it could fluctuate from one year to the next. Right. Now, what's interesting is over that uh, over the 82-year history that I'm looking at this chart. So, from 1934, if you had invested a thousand dollars in the conservative portfolio, you would have. $400,000 today. So $1,000 has grown to $400,000 in a conservative portfolio over 82 years. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now we move on to the moderate and uh, in the moderate portfolio, the bonds dropped from 70% down to 40 and now we have 60% stocks. So 40% bonds, 60% stocks, The the stocks would be 30% Canadian, 15% US stocks and 15% international stocks. The rate of return for the last 25 years has been 8.4%. Last year it did 6.1. So remember the conservative did 1.8, the mm. moderate now it did 6.1. The standard deviation is 10%. So that means if we applied that to, you could have as much as minus 11.6% would be a rate of return in any given year to as much as plus 28% in any given year. So now you've got quite a range or volatility yeah. of returns. Your $1,000 invested in 1934 would be worth $1 million today. So, so conservative, $1,000, 400 grand, mm-hmm. moderate, $1,000, 1 million. Now let's talk about the aggressive. So in the aggressive, we've dropped our stocks down to zero. So it's a hundred percent or sorry, our our bonds down to zero. It's a hundred percent stocks and we would break it out. 40% Canadian, 25% U S large cap, 25% international stocks and 10% U S small cap, small cap and large cap refers to the size of the company, their capitalization, Mm -hmm. uh, we heard today about, uh, Apple hitting an $800 billion capitalization. That's the size of their, all their stock outstanding times the share price. So mm-hmm. it is definitely a large cap. Yeah. It's the large, one of the largest in the world now. Uh, so the aggressive portfolio over 25 years has averaged 9% over the last 25 years. Over last year alone, it did 11. Mm-hmm. Okay. So. The standard deviation for the aggressive portfolio is 15.6%. So now our range of returns in any given year could be as, as low as 22% to as high as plus 40. So we've got a 60% range there yeah. in terms of the performance. That $1,000 that you started with in 1934 invested in the aggressive portfolio is now worth how much? So remember we went conservative mm-hmm. was 400 grand. Mm-hmm. Moderate was 1 million. How much do you think the-, the 1.7. $4 million. Oh, I was
0: a little off.
2: <laughs> <laughs> $4 million. So if you were willing to ride that roller coaster, that minus 22% to as much as plus 40 Or you just fell asleep and you woke up eighty two years later and you you achieve that nine percent return, your thousand bucks is worth four million dollars. So we know over time the pattern makes sense. It doesn't mean that when your portfolio is down twenty two percent, it doesn't hurt. Yeah. And you're not Or you're cashing out at that time. Yeah, or you're panicking or you're calling us and saying, Now what? should we be doing something different? And, uh, and so that's, that's the, always the challenge that on, when you back test these things, the numbers make sense. And there's a logical pattern to this. The more risk you take, the more volatility you will have and the higher return you will get over time. That All is right. the rule.
1: And, and where that, uh, that is normally the rule. Okay. But it's interesting when you look at bonds, a lot of people look at bonds and think, okay, there's no risk there, there's, they're guaranteed. But what people fail to realize, there's interest rate risk. So if interest rates go up, bonds go down in value. Mm-hmm. So you're looking in the last, really since the early 80s, when interest rates, you know, mortgage rates were 20%. Since 1980 till now, we've had pretty much dropping interest rates. Yeah. So bonds have actually had a great long 37-year bull market. And there's volatility there though. And a lot of people don't think about what's the standard deviation of bonds well it turns out the standard deviation of bonds is about 7.1 percent that conservative portfolio that andy was mentioning 7.3 was 7.3 percent so the standard deviation is almost identical as a conservative portfolio practically identical and i I believe at 80 20 it is identical however the return even though you're taking the same amount of risk by adding 20 or 30 percent stocks to your portfolio you're adding about 0.6 to 0.8 percent return to your average rate of return, and this is important because you look at uh, somebody's retirement, and you think, okay, well, we just <laughs> we've just seen a whole lot of people hit the centurion mark lately, and they're living past 100. That's one of the biggest risks is is uh, is longevity. Yeah. And if you can make an mm-hmm. extra half percent um, by and take the exact same risk, then why wouldn't you want to do mm-hmm. that? Mm-hmm. And that's what, and it's simply a bit of education. You know, you're going to have some volatility and, and don't be fooled by the name bond that it's, it doesn't go up and down. It does go up and down, but you are, it's nice to know you're properly diversified. So even our safest investors that got, went through that, uh, that little uh, questionnaire, if they were very conservative and they say, okay, I usually would go in like GICs only in bonds. Well, that, that conservative portfolio of 70-30 is approximately the same but we'll give you a better rate return. return. Yep.
0: We are planning your financial future. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can call now and leave a message at 905-529-7165. And don't forget to check out the website at andyanddon.com. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. I'm Scott Thompson. You can call uh, right now and leave a message. They will get back to you at 905-529-7165. That's 905-529-7165. And of course, don't forget the uh, website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. Are ETFs the way to go? What is that? Explain it first. (laughs) Okay, first of all, uh, ETF is an exchange traded fund
1: mm-hmm. basically what you're doing is you're buying say a, it's like a stock of owning all the shares of a particular type of uh, say, index mm-hmm. so uh, if you're gonna get a Canadian um, stock market ETF they would have the same proportion of all the stocks in one one type of vehicle right so if uh, for example uh, Royal Bank yeah. is the largest company in Canada and it represents 8% of the Canadian holdings, then that ETF would have eight percent in Royal Bank. Right. It's it's called passive management. You're not actively trying to time anything. You're not trying to get any extra value. You're simply trying to follow whatever that index is doing. And then you subtract the MER. So the the manage, management expense ratio is what MER stands for, and that's the cost to run an ETF. And I'm looking here at a chart, and it's it ranges. It looks like from about 0.4 to oh, as high as about 0.8. Mm-hmm. So very inexpensive relative to a mutual fund that's generally in the area of 2%. So right off the bat, a lot of people say, I want an ETF, you know, I want to pay less fees. Mm-hmm. And the assumption is that ETF is going to get a higher return and they discount the value of, of, of management. Okay, the value of, of active management and an active manager is saying, okay, I, I like a uh, Royal bank. I don't necessarily want only 8% there. I want 10% Royal Bank. Mm-hmm. And Valiant Pharmaceuticals, I don't want any of that. Um, I, don't, I don't believe in the company. And as it turned out, you know, it went down like crazy. Well, an ETF would have had Valiant Pharmaceuticals a year ago. Mm-hmm. It was the largest company in Canada. Or maybe it was two years ago. But whatever the way is, we've seen things like just Nortel, go way down. Yep. Uh, we've seen BlackBerry go way down. We've seen a few of them. And an ETF is simply going to follow whatever that index is doing res- regardless. So there's no thinking going on in a passive environment. Now there is. Now that what they've done though is they have taken an ETF and they've made subsections of them. So you can buy an ETF dividend fund. okay? And what this does and this was in uh, the Globe Mail just a week ago and it basically would buy and there's uh, eleven different um, manufacturers of these Canadian dividend ETFs, mm-hmm. and the MERS like I said run from point four to point eight. They have a, a yield, meaning a, a dividend income of about three to four percent. Okay, and basically it's like a faucet that pours out cash every month. These things, mm. okay, because the dividends just keep flowing through. They're they're excellent. Nothing wrong with them at all, but. The implication is that they will be a better investment than, say, a managed portfolio or a managed dividend fund because, of course, you're not paying as much. Right. It's got to be better. Um, and this is where it was interesting. I'm looking at the rate of returns. Now, now a week ago, I'm looking at these returns. I said, well, wow, I wonder what how well they've done. And I'm looking. And I says, well, they've, you know, there's been one year returns as high as you know, 15, 18%, but there, you know, there's others that I didn't do that well. And I look at the three-year return, I look at the five-year return. So out of these 11, the average one-year return of these ETFs was 13.87, sorry, it was 15.38%. Well, we have a dividend fund. It is the largest dividend fund in Canada. It has uh, been around since 1962. It's got well over a billion, uh, sorry, about 11 billion in it. It's our largest fund. It's actually the second largest fund in Canada, and in spite of its size, its average last year was thirteen point eight seven. So somebody's saying, "Well, there you go. Told you, ETFs are better." My the average ETF did one point five percent better, and this is right till the end of April. So this is current. Well, the, you know who who measures um, the returns by one year though? Most people want to go a little longer than one year mm-hmm. because you know it could be an aberration. So you look at the three year return. And this is what was very telling. The three-year return was 4.95%. And our three-year return was 4.82%. So virtually the same. There's only 0.13% difference between the ETFs and our dividend fund. And this was just an average of all of them. I didn't Mm -hmm. take the worst or the best. I just averaged all 11 out. So I said, okay, well, that doesn't seem to really make sense then for all these ETF advocates thinking that ETFs are the way to go. Well, you know what, maybe the three years in aberration, maybe the five year, that will really be telling because now you have spread it out even further. So I looked at the average of those. Now there was only eight of the 11 that had a five year return. So I took the eight and the average five year return for those ETFs, dividend paying ETFs was 7.34%. Hmm. Funny enough, our dividend fund <coughs> averaged 7.78%. So it actually averaged over five years, half percent more per year. So, and this is what I'm getting at is a lot, of, a lot of times, I'm finding advisors in the newspapers and different articles are taking people's eye off the ball. They're talking about the cost, but not what the client's getting. Right. And so if you bought the average ETF over those last five years and paid less, you actually reduced your rate of return by half percent every single year for five years. And on top of that, you're getting no advice, you're getting, and which is, is huge, And you're also assuming that the client stays in it. What we're finding out with ETFs is the turnover rate in ETFs is far greater. They're actually trading like stocks. So people are buying and selling these ETFs far more regularly than by just holding say our dividend fund. So even though the five year return might've shown 7.34%, I'd be surprised if the average client got that because the average turnover rate in ETF, they'd be cashing (laughs) them in within a year. Mm -hmm. Whereas our dividend fund, the average client lasts very close to five years. So they're actually getting 7.78%. So as much as you have to look at cost is a a part of the factor, definitely don't take your eyes off the bigger picture and that's your return.
0: We have been planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox have been here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. Their phone lines are open. You can call now and leave a message at 905-529-7165. And don't forget to check out their website at andyanddon.com. Thank you, gentlemen. We'll see you next week. Thanks, sir.